tonight we're talking about discipleship and, and worship. Last night, last week we uh, talked about prayer uh, and how that fit in. And last week we were pretty practical, pretty casual, pretty informal. But but tonight, um, tonight we're going to go a bit more hardcore. So I hope you hope you're ready for it and ready to dive in. Um, yeah, good. Whoever was pumped for that. Um, a couple of years back, Mary and I went to the Hillsong Conference in Sydney. Um, it's funny, we're from Sydney, we never went to Hillsong Church. I think I've been to Hillsong Church more often since I've lived in Wodonga than when I lived five minutes away from it. But um, anyway, I went to the conference a few years back and, and the conference was great, uh, though I don't remember anything specifically from it apart from this one experience. It was in one of the main rallies and Beth Moore was, was due to preach. Uh, and she's a real favourite of Merrin's, so, so we were there um, ready and eager, and I have to say, Beth, you know, I'd never heard her before, I'd seen videos of her, and she has big hair, um, and so I was, you know, I do admit that I was a bit against her from the outset, but she, um, she just smashed it out, she, like, absolute cracker, it was awesome, um, so I remember that, but, but that's not my prime memory, my, what really stands out is this guy who was sitting you know, one or two rows in front of us. And during the music, you know, this guy, man, he was, he was into it. I mean, he was hands raised, eyes closed, swaying along. He was like, um, whatever was going on, he was just worshipping God through the music and the song uh, that Hillsong are known for. I mean, they were doing it with excellence, and this guy was all the way into it. But then the music time finished up, and, and after a bit of, you know, the usual guff, um, Beth was then up, and all through the time that Beth Moore was, was preaching, this guy was, you know, checking his phone, joking with his mates who were sitting next to him. He was snuggling up with his girlfriend, um, getting up, going to the toilet, coming back, going out, buying a drink, you know, just, just all this stuff, and just generally being utterly disengaged through the preaching time. Until the band got up again. Suddenly, after ignoring how God might have been speaking to him for the last 45 minutes or so, he was keen as mustard to get up again and to worship God and declare how much God meant to him and all the sacrifice and commitment to God that, that he was going to express. He was right into it again. And I just witnessed all this and I just thought, there's something, there's something not right here. There's this disconnect in this guy's life that, that the experience of worship through music was disengaged with his life and all of his, his interaction with God's word and how, in general, he was, he was living. Perhaps Isaiah's words that Jesus quoted could be applied to him, that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so tonight, as we come to consider this topic of worship, uh, we're considering that specifically as it relates to helping us be a disciple or a follower of Jesus and the experience of this guy in particular prompts me to ask, what is it that we do in worship? And how, how does that help us to become more and more like Jesus? And how do we engage in it in such a way that, that we're not just here and we're singing some cool words to some cool songs with a rocking band, you know, all that kind of stuff, but it actually doesn't impact us, it doesn't change us, it doesn't uh, have any uh, impact on our life. Is it enough for us to just come and sing and raise our hands, or is there more going on as we worship? So with that kind of questioning in mind, let's, let's pray, and we'll, we're going to dive, dive into it. God, I pray that tonight um, we have ears to hear what you would say to us. 
we pray that it would not be said of us that we honour you with our lips, but our hearts are far from you. And so instead, God, I pray that now, ready to hear your word, that we would have hearts open to you, that we would be ready, eager, um, anticipating how you would speak to us, how you would reveal yourself to us, what, what you would have of us as we live this life of following after you. And so we pray, God, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him. And John then turns to his disciples and he says, and to the crowd around him and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And other translations phrase that to actually be, to actually say, Behold. And I think this is a richer word than for us to just look. It's saying to us, behold, gaze upon, look intently at Jesus, this Lamb of God who takes away our sin and the sin of the world. It's not just glance at him. It's not look in the mirror and then look away. It's, it's not um, it's to stare intently, to gaze lovingly, to, to behold him. Fix your attentions, John is saying, on God our Savior. And so that's what I want us to do tonight, to behold the Lamb of God. Uh, because at its simplest, worship is our response to a revelation of God. See, when, when we get a glimpse of God, when we see who He is, when we see what He is like, when we consider what He has done, in other words, when we behold Him, we cannot help but respond. You see it throughout the Scriptures. You see Moses at the burning bush. You see Isaiah in the temple. You see Mary in the garden beholding the resurrected Jesus. There's this rhythm to it of seeing and responding, of beholding and worshipping. We breathe in a revelation of who God is and then we breathe out worship in, in response. And just as with our own breath, both movements are necessary. We can't just be breathing out all the time without taking anything in because we'll, you know, pass out or something and likewise we can't just gather and take in all this good stuff without then responding to it both movements are needed so let's do what John calls us to do and behold our God that we would worship him together in our songs in our prayer in our service in our lives so I want us to go to Romans 11 Paul ends um Paul ends Romans chapter 11 with this song of praise to God, this song glorying in who God is. Up to this point throughout the rest of the book, Paul has been outlining the good news of the gospel, that we are all sinners who fall short of God's righteousness, but that by our trusting in Christ, we can receive his righteousness through faith, that we can be forgiven and be adopted into God's family. And he then kind of tangents into a consideration of God's good sovereignty and how that plays out in our salvation. But then having spent 11 chapters recounting all of this, having spent 11 chapters beholding God, beholding the gospel, beholding what God has done for us, he's ready to sing. And he bursts out with this. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. 
Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul considers the scope and the grandeur of God's work and his character. And and his affections and his attentions are just fixed on the wonder of God. And as a result, he just can't help but glorify him. He just can't help but worship. And as he does so, throughout this this song, he is quoting or alluding alluding to numerous passages from the Old Testament that that exalt God. He starts in, in this first section by uh, with declaring just how deep is the wisdom and the knowledge of God, that it is so far beyond our limited understanding. It reminds me of God's words in Isaiah 55. He says there, My thoughts, they're not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. He says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your uh, higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we could take the greatest thinker, the smartest person with the highest IQ in the world. We could take the Sheldon Coopers. We could take the Stephen Hawkings. We could take you know, these geniuses. And God would rightfully be able to say, what's that little speck of dust saying? What does, what does he think that he's figured out? What's she claiming that she thinks she knows? Because God is so far beyond our figuring out. Because he is so far beyond us. He's so far greater and higher beyond us. He is glorious beyond compare. And Paul goes on then, and he quotes in this next bit from Isaiah 40. The verse he refers to here comes from a longer passage, which again exalts the glory of God. In Isaiah 40, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on a scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it who taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. When you read this, you begin to get a sense of the scope of the vastness and grandeur of God. He holds the waters of the earth. Get this in your head. He holds the waters of the earth in his hand. Now, if you've ever tried, like me, to hold water in your hand, like you actually end up with a pretty pitiful amount. But God holds all the waters of the earth just in his hands. He says the nations, you know, Australia, the US, China, the UK, Russia, all all the rest that these are just a drop of dust in a small bucket. They are as nothing in comparison to him. He has no rival because he has no equal. And so Isaiah continues, he says, Do you not know? And have you not heard? 
Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers? He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. And so he says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. To whom will you compare me, God says? Who is my equal? The implicit answer to these questions is no one and no thing. No one is inherently more worthy of glory or of worship than God, and his worthiness so trivializes any other claim that they just look ridiculous in comparison. But Paul is still not finished. As he continues to behold his God, he then in this next verse alludes to the book of Job. Now, Job finishes with with chapter after chapter of God declaring the glories of of who he is and of what he has done. He puts Job back in his place as a mere creature before his creator. And in that extended declaration, God makes this assertion. He says, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Everything under heaven belongs to God. In other words, then, God owes us nothing. So we can get that chip off our shoulder. But because anything we have, be that our things, our talents, our abilities, our very life and breath, anything we have belongs to him. Now, we might be in awe of someone who has a newer, better phone than us. We might look on with a bit of envy on someone who you know, keeps up with the latest fashion and styles and has shoes that we could only ever dream of owning. We might be impressed with someone who has far greater musical or artistic talent than us, as someone for whom academics just comes naturally, as someone who has a physique and an athleticism that we would just love to have. But if we we are in awe of what they have, well, when we behold God, we actually understand that he has everything. So how much more should we be in awe of him? All that we have and all that others have should not actually be a cause for jealousy or covetousness on our part, but rather a cause for us to glorify him because he owns it all and it all belongs to him anyway. And so these are the thoughts that are running through Paul's mind as he makes this declaration at the end of Romans 11. He's been considering God. He's been considering the majesty and the wonder and the grandeur and the supremacy of him. And it's captured his attention and his affections. And so he finishes this burst of praise by saying that from him and through him and for him are all things. And so to him be glory forever. Amen. Everything has come from him. 
Everything has come by him and through him. Everything is for him. In Colossians, Paul writes that the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so to him be the glory, and forever so. Because that's the only thing that even remotely begins to approach the reality of what God is worthy of. When we consider who he is, to, to glorify him forever is only merely beginning to approach what he's worthy of. Because here's the even more incredible thing. As we think about God in, in all these ways that we've already considered, as we begin to grasp something of who he is, something of what he is like, it is then this God who has chosen to save us. It is this God that we sinned against. And it's from this God that we were deserving of judgment and wrath. But it's this God then who sent his son to suffer in our place. And so we come back to beholding Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can see why John the Baptist recognizes Jesus as someone whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. Because this lamb that we are beholding, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And so by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You know, any other God, any other religious system, it requires that we do something to be able to come to God. But in Jesus, this glorious, majestic God that we've been considering, God, this God himself has made the way for us puny little sinners to be loved and forgiven and welcomed into his very family. This mighty, glorious God to whom the nations are a drop in a bucket, let alone individual you and me, he exerted himself to do everything needed for our salvation he exerted himself to do everything for us to be forgiven and to come back to know him so in revelation chapter 5 where we see the victorious lion of judah is the lamb that was slain we read that there are 24 elders around the throne and four living creatures and they all were beholding him and they fell down before the lamb and they sung a new song saying you are worthy to take the scroll and you are worthy to open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation Jesus 
Jesus' incredible worthiness is because he was slain, dying for our sins and purchasing us for God. And this worthiness is recognized in heaven as many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 add their voices to sing. And think about this, whenever an angel appears in the scriptures, people fall down like dead before them because they're so overcome and awestruck by them. But this is now saying that 10,000 times 10,000 of angels add their voices to sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then as if that's still not enough. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Church, this is, this is worship. To behold God to have him revealed before our eyes and our hearts, to, that then prompts us to respond in praise and adoration. I've gone through a lot of scripture tonight, and that's on purpose because it's in these words that God reveals himself to, to us. If we want to know him, if we want to see him, if we want to behold him, it's through what he has said of himself in his word. And so breathing in a vision of him, as we've done in these last minutes, we breathe out worship of and to Him. Behold the Lamb of God. Consider the glories of the gospel and worship God in all of His excellencies. For He is so incredibly worthy of it. Having breathed Him in, let's, let's breathe out in response as we worship. Take your seats again. We've come and we've beheld our God. We've beheld Him in His Word. We've seen His revelation of His glorious self. We've spent time now to respond in praise and adoration. What a beautiful, wonderful, powerful name. It is the name of Jesus, the one we've come to behold. But there's a second part of the question that, that we kind of started with. And that was, how does, how does all this relate to our topic of being a disciple of Jesus, who's then becoming more and more like him? How does what we have just done, how does our worship help us follow Jesus? And so that's what I just want to take a few moments as we finish up and coming back to answer with. And so we go back to John chapter 1. And John the Baptist, and we'll find an answer there. We've already seen John the Baptist's call in verse 29 for us to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then in verse 35 we read that the next day John was there again with two of his disciples and he saw Jesus passing by and he said, Look, behold the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. If worship is to behold a revelation of God and to then respond to him, we see that play out right here. These disciples of John, they behold Jesus. And their response is that they follow him. That's their response. That's their worship. And I think this was my issue with the guy at, at Hillsong Conference. 
He seemed to want the buzz and the hype of corporate musical worship, but not getting down to the nitty-gritty of knowing and following Jesus in all aspects of his daily life. He wasn't interested in hearing what Jesus might be saying through his word. He wasn't interested in seeing God revealed and to then respond to that. Now, I could be being wildly unfair about this guy. I do admit that. But as Paul writes in Romans 12, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your true and your proper worship. Our response to beholding the gospel and the God revealed in it is for us to not just sing when we're in church, though that is part of it, but for us to give our bodies, to give our whole lives as our act of worship. And as we do so, we'll become more and more like the one that we're following. So, so how does this happen? How does worship help us become more like Jesus? At least three quick ways. As we gather together every Sunday, as we sing and pray and share in communion those weeks when we do that, as we listen to the word preached again and again, we are rehearsing the story of the gospel. We are having the good news of salvation and of life in Jesus held before our minds and our hearts. We are beholding the Lamb who has taken away our sin and given us his life. So many of the songs that we've sung tonight have rehearsed that story for us. And as we remind ourselves of it, Week by week, it sinks deep into our lives to shape who and how we are. You might have a family story that's defining for you. you know, at random moments, you, you sit around a meal table or, or you're lounging on the couch, you're traveling in the car, and someone tells that story again. Remember that time when? And it's, it's this story that defines and describes, that encapsulates your family and your identity within it. Well, that's what worship does. We gather on a Sunday to say, remember that time when? Remember how we were sinners far from God, lost to him and deserving of his wrath? But then how he sent his son to die, his death for our sins so that we could be forgiven? And how he then gave us his life so that we're now saved saints living for him and under his good lordship. Remember that? In worship, we rehearse the story, we proclaim the gospel, and each time we do it, it sinks in deeper and deeper and deeper, forming and shaping us as God's people who are becoming like his son. Our new gospel-bought identity sinks in, that we are infinitely loved and worthy, that we are the children of a magnificent and glorious God in whom he delights that we are set free from sin and its power and have been set free to live in holiness and in the fullness that God has for us. This, this is what worship does. It helps us to know not only who our God is, undeniably it does that, but it helps us to know who we are in relation to him and to live then according to that. In worship too, we enlarge our picture or our understanding of God. We get a bigger God. There's this quote that I read recently, that God made man in his image and then we returned the favor. Our default position 
is that we would shrink God to someone who is very similar to ourselves, to someone who's actually just like us but a bit more powerful, someone who fits with what we think God should be, someone that we can understand and figure out. We make God in our image. But we've already read God's words from Isaiah. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Or, or his words when he says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is big, vast, beyond our imagining. You know, so, so if the nations are like dust to him, then, then what are we? So when we make God in our own image, he's not really much of a God worth trusting, not really much of a God worth following and worth giving our lives to. But worship, though, reminds us of who our God really is. He has no rival. Death could not hold him. It enlarges our vision of God again and breaks him out of the small box that we've reduced him to and makes him more like his glorious self in our minds Again, And so this helps us to follow him because life doesn't always make sense. We can't figure it out and we can't figure God out. But that's why he is God. And having this enlarged vision of who God is helps me to trust him and to follow him even when things don't make sense to me. I may not be able to figure it out, but I've got this big God who's got it all in hand and I can trust him. That's what worship does. It helps us to have this bigger vision of God. And so I want to, the third way I want to suggest that worship helps us to follow Jesus better is that it then reorders our values and our priorities. Our default position, yes, is to shrink God, but our default position is to live as if we are God. We may not be that explicit or that conscious about it, but we live as if we are in charge of our lives. We are the most important people in our world and we live then as a result to please ourselves. But worship reminds us that we are not God and that we are too small and unworthy of bending all of our will and energy to please. Worship reminds us that God is God. Now, after all, we don't, we don't gather to sing songs and pray to ourselves. We're not starting, you know, the church of Matt and inviting you around to my house to oh, sing songs to me, you know, because that's really cool. Like, well, we, don't, we don't do that. We've not come to open and submit our lives to our own journals. We've come to behold God as God. And, and, and with this reorientation, our, our values, our priorities, our lives, they also get reordered. We looked at this recently in our series in Colossians. Where Paul writes, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not then on earthly things. Or as Jesus himself said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Sin would have us bend inward towards ourselves. It sets ourselves up as the highest authority, as the highest good, as the highest God in our lives. But worship like we've done together tonight, helps us to put God back in his rightful place, back in his supreme place, and to then order our lives from there. So as, as we wrap up then, here's the heart of how worship helps us in our discipleship. 
We can't truly behold God and be unchanged by the experience. We can't truly behold God and who he is and what he has done and the glory of all that and be unchanged by the experience. It flows into our lives. It shapes our identity. It enlarges our understanding of who God is and it reorders our priorities. So what we do as we gather here shapes and informs what we do and how we live as we scatter. As we behold the Lamb of God, we follow Him and become like Him. So with all that in view then, can I say, church, behold Jesus. And in doing so, follow Him with all of your life. Let's, let's pray to that end and then I'll send us off. God, I thank you that we've had this time together tonight to have uh, your revelation of yourself held before us. We've looked at uh, scriptures from all over the place where, where you just reveal yourself as so beyond compare, so glorious, so majestic, so wonderful, so powerful, so vast. And God, may these not then just be words. May they not just be words from a, from a page that we've read. May they not just be things that have been said to us. But, but may, as I prayed at the start, may the eyes of our heart be open to truly see you as you are, to, to grasp even just that much more who you are for us to behold you. God, I pray that we would gaze intently upon you intently upon you as you reveal yourself to be and not as we reduce you to be. And God, as we see you, and as we see then, you know, for you in all your glory, yet your love and your care and what you have done for us through Jesus to, to save us, God, as we see that, may we just be awed and overwhelmed with the wonder of who you are and the wonder of your gospel. God, you're a good God. You're a glorious God. We've spent our time together tonight praising you. We've breathed in this revelation of you, and we've breathed out then our words of praise, of adoration, our prayers and, our, um, and all the rest that we've sung and done, God. And I pray then, as the last step, as we go from here then, that we'll go following you, that our experience of worship has not just been a good buzz for us, but it's been something that's changed us, transformed us, making us more and more like your son. God, as we gaze upon him, as we behold the Lamb of God, may we follow him and become more like him in all, all the ways that you would have us do that. And so we pray, God, we pray this, committing ourselves to you and to your good purposes in Jesus' name. Amen.